Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Some of my friends sit around in the evening and they worry about the times ahead, but everyone else is overwhelmed by indifference and the promise of an early bed. Hi everyone, welcome back to uh, Lo-Fi Lectionary. This is going to be a very special episode um, this is actually a live recording of a sermon I gave. I was invited to uh, speak at a church here in Flagstaff at Trinity Heights, um, where I work and do children's ministry. Um, and I was given a, a Lent passage um, to find a, a passage about stones, and this is the one I came up with. So this is a sermon that I call Bricks. It's on the story from Luke 4. So if you've been tracking with us so far, you've already heard this story. But uh, in doing more research about it and looking into it more, I actually learned even more about it and came up with a new take on it. So I hope you dig it. Uh, we will be back soon with some new episodes going further on into Luke 19. I'm kind of finally ready and got my research ready. So in the meantime, this will hold you over for uh, another few days. Uh, I hope you really like it. We'll see you soon. Today's gospel reading comes from the, the book of Luke chapter 4. And this is like the quintessential Lent story uh, we actually get our 40-day uh, period of Lent in the church calendar from this very story. And so here we are towards the beginning of Lent. Uh, please hear this story, and then we're going to really dive into it. So here we go. Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, that's my devil voice, if you are the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. This is today's reading, the word of the Lord. We don't do that here? Okay, never mind. Um, well, uh, <laughs> that's our story for today, but um, it's actually part of a much bigger story, and I'm actually going to start off talking to our kids. So we are lucky enough today to have the elementary Sunday school class joining us, and I'm going to look for them. If you're in the elementary school Sunday school class, put your hands up real big so I can see where you are. Okay, most of you guys are over here, because I'm going to quiz you guys to see if you have been listening the last month. For the last month in our Sunday school class, we've been going through the stories of the kings, and today in our scripture reading, Jesus stands on top of the temple. And so, kids, in the Old Testament, who builds the temple? Shout it out if you know it. Solomon does! Yay! We're good. All right, so when Solomon builds it now, 
he had to build it out of stones. And I have to wonder, when we talk about kings, because Jesus is being challenged as to whether or not he's king here. And Solomon was the king who built the temple. We've been learning about all the kings of Israel. Kings in the Bible. Are they generally good or generally not so good, kids? Not so good. Well done. You've been listening well. And so Jesus here in the story, he's being tested as to whether or not he's going to be a good king or a bad king. And just like Solomon took on the task of using stones to build a temple, I have a task for you kids, should you choose to accept it. If you look in the back, Sarah Stamer is standing next to my mystery table that I set up before the service. She's going to pick that parachute off the top, and there are your very own bricks and stones. I want you guys to build a temple. But none of you gets to be king. You have to work together. And we're going to go, and when the service is over, we're all going to get to go look at it. If you want to, go for it. There's also new uh, coloring pages back there if you need one. Go for it, kids. At the, in, in June, we have something planned. I'm talking to the adults now. In June, we have something planned. We're going to bring the kids from my Sunday school class in here, and they're going to challenge a bunch of you on your Bible knowledge. And I've been training them well. So you better be ready. I'm giving you a couple months of warning to brush up. It's going to be good. Um, well, I'm, 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 this is the season of Lent, and during it, all, our sermons and our themes, we, we confess a lot, we repent a lot. It's a time for self-examination, which means it's not the, not the happiest time in the church calendar. Um, and so I, our, our message in our story today is actually quite challenging. And I invite us all to be open to challenge as Jesus was open to the challenge before he started his ministry. Um, in, in our Sunday school class, we, 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 we teach kids Bible stories, but what I love about our, our class and the way that we teach it, we teach individual stories, but we always teach them within the context of the bigger story of the Bible. If you go in fellowship hall, you'll look on the wall. There's a giant timeline of the entire history of Israel through the Bible. And that's crucially important because we can teach kids Bible stories, but if we don't teach them the bigger story, they don't learn how to put it all together. And they don't learn how the Bible is a living book where the authors together are working to figure out what it means to be God's people, and they challenge each other. And some of them even write further on, and they look back at old events, and they, they kind of start to look at it differently than the people did at the time. And so to understand this story from the book of Luke, we're going to jump back, and we're going to look at a couple other stories that lead into it. Because I always read this Jesus story, it's like, oh, isn't it cool that Jesus avoids temptation? Isn't it cool that he doesn't give in to the vices and indulgences like the rest of us do? And that's a good story. But when you understand the stories that come before it, you realize this moment for Jesus is so much more. What's happening with Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness is all about what kind of king he's going to be. And what kind of path he's going to set forward for humanity. It's a cosmic event. And it's going to get good. So I'm going to pray real quick. We're going to jump around in the Bible. It's going to be good. Stay with me. You ready? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity, what it means to be a people together. And the hard part about being your people is we have to let you look at us. And when you look at us, you see what you've made, and you love us so much, and you put your image in each of us. But also it challenges us to be honest about the parts of ourselves that maybe we are not so proud of. 
and we are part of a long history of people doing good things, and we are part of a long, long history of people making huge mistakes. And so, God, as we look at you today, may you also look back at us, and together, may we find a new way forward for a world that desperately needs a new way. Amen. Um, so to, to, to get into this story, uh, we actually have to jump way back. We're going to go all the way back to the founding of the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. Um, for those of you guys who maybe aren't super familiar with the Bible, there's this, the first book is Genesis, and it's all about like the first people and how they, how they try and engage with God, and they, they make big mistakes, but they're, but they're trying, and God comes and he says, I've put my image inside of you, I've created you good, and we're going to start a new rescue plan for the world I'm going to make you a people whose job it is to bless all other people in the world, and that's how we're going to do it. And so this first family starts out, and they, they make a covenant with God, and they keep trying, and they keep trying. Soon enough, famine strikes the land, and they have to journey to Egypt, to a foreign land, to get food to survive. And while they're there, one of them, Joseph, saves the entire world, because the famine spreads throughout every known people. But Joseph gets a clear message from God that they need to prepare, and so they prepare stores of food, and it says that people from all lands all over came to Egypt, and because of what Joseph and his family did, they fed everybody. And so the book of Exodus starts out right after that, and it goes like this. This is from Exodus chapter 1. Then Joseph died. Wonderful way to start the story, sorry. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and that whole generation. Sorry, it happens. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They were fruitful and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They were fruitful and multiplied. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It goes all the way back to the beginning, to the Genesis story. That's God's first command. You are to be a people who enjoy the world and go out and be fruitful and multiply. What the author of Exodus is doing here is he's saying when the people were here together and they built up stores of food and they shared it with everybody, they were reestablishing the garden. They're reestablishing paradise. Something is going on that's so special here. It's like the world is right amongst this refugee community in Egypt. What an interesting way to start a story. But God's plan for saving the world is finally coming together. It sounds good. Surely nothing bad could happen. Now a new king arose over Egypt, this Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal with them shrewdly, or they will increase. And in the event of war, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, Pharaoh set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Pharaoh enacts slavery over this vulnerable people that were trying to start something new and right and good in the world. And so the slaves built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless and imposing tasks on them and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they opposed on them. They were doing something good. 
They saved the world. And then a king comes. And he sees a vulnerable people. And instead of joining in on the sharing and the creating and the protecting, he dismantles paradise. Because it's an economic opportunity for him. He has so much power, he can get away with it. And so slavery and oppression begins. The chains and the whips come out. And these people who are made in the image of God are now treated not as special people like every one of us is. They're just brickmakers to Pharaoh. Because that's all he wants. And he builds monuments to himself, and he uses them. The dehumanizing oppressive act. And he builds more storehouses and builds up the cities, but it's not new storehouses to share and save the world, is it? It's new storehouses and cities for himself. And so begins a story of what kings do in the Bible. We, we, if, 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 we, if we skip on um, further in the story, we see that God is not okay with this. Throughout the rest of the Exodus story, God enacts drastic measures to save people from slavery and oppression because God is not okay with that. That's not how it's supposed to be. So we get that wonderful um, Prince of Egypt movie story with, with, with plagues, and sickness, and death, and then an escape through a sea, and then the starting of a new land and the giving of a new law because God is calling these people out saying, we're going to try it again, and I want you to be different. You are not to be like Pharaoh back in Egypt. You are to be something new and good for the world. Your entire existence is supposed to be for the blessing of all others, not for yourselves. And it goes, and it's rocky, and it's hard, and it's messy. And soon enough, the people look around and they say, well, we don't have a king. And God says, yes, you're not supposed to. In the book of Samuel, they barter back and forth with Samuel the prophet as an intermediary. They say, we want a king. And Samuel goes, no, 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 you don't want a king. You don't know what you're saying. And they say, go to God and ask us for a king. Samuel goes to God. He says, hey, they want a king. And God says, tell them, no, it's really bad. I know what kings do. And Samuel goes, hey, God doesn't want you to have a king. And they send him. Eventually, God relents. He says, fine, I'll give you a king. But I'm going to teach you what your king is supposed to be like. Because you're a different people. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, there's a whole set of laws of what kings are supposed to do. I'm going to give you the bullet points here because it's really fascinating. At least I think so. Number one, the king is supposed to have not a lot of horses. Now, I'm pretty sure God loves horses and ponies just as much as the rest of us. But the reason why God doesn't want a king of Israel to have a lot of horses is because horses are the most advanced military technology at the time. So God's rule, if you're going to be a king, you're not allowed to have a giant military because I know what kings do with a giant military. Then he says, you're not supposed to make any deals or have anything to do with Egypt because I don't want you guys going back into slavery and oppression. Rule number three, the king is not supposed to have a lot of wives. It's not that God doesn't like marriage or something like that. It's just like when kings make marriages, it's all political alliances. 
and it's mixing their religion and it's mixing their politics and that's not good because God knows what happens if they go back to an oppressive way of being. They're supposed to trust him only. They're not supposed to be making deals and scheming. Number four, they're not supposed to accumulate quote-unquote large amounts of gold. If you're going to be king, you're not supposed to be wealthy because then you're using the kingship for yourself and not for the benefit of all others. And then it ends with this really interesting uh, phrase that I actually just noticed really for the first time today. It says that your, your king in Israel is to not think of himself as better than anyone else. It's like something right out of a millennial parenting guidebook, right? Like, oh, teach your kids you're no better than anyone. Well, you're super special, but you're no better than anyone else, right? And that's what the king in Israel is supposed to be like. It's not supposed to be a place of status and privilege to get whatever you want done. It's not supposed to be about you at all. In fact, the king is supposed to carry the law with him wherever he goes because he's trying to model what it means to be a follower and a person of God to the rest of the world. He's supposed to be the, the primary person who's interested in blessing all others. So that way everyone learns how to do that. And surely if it's written in their laws, they won't get it wrong, right? Their first two kings, we don't actually get a lot of stories about, of actually being king. Saul goes out pretty quickly. David, we don't get a lot of stories about him being king so much as him just going out and fighting a lot. Because the Philistines keep attacking. And his life is hectic and crazy. The first king we kind of see as like an established king of Israel we get is David's son, Solomon. And there's one Bible story we always teach kids about Solomon. Which one is it? The baby one, that one's really creepy. But what's the one before that? God appears to Solomon in a dream. What does Solomon ask for? Wisdom! Oh, finally, we're going to get a smart king who's going to know what's right from wrong, unlike all the other kings and pharaohs before. Finally. You can hear the people when they read that, like, cheer, thank goodness. A king who knows what the right thing to do is. A king who can help us reestablish paradise for the benefit of the rest of the world. We get to uh, this interesting part in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4. It goes like this. Because Solomon, when he starts out, he is wise, and that wisdom leads to a lot of prosperity for the nation of Israel. They establish themselves. The wars slow down and stop so they can finally build their infrastructure and stuff like that. And they, they start to enter the world scene as like an actual nation. And it goes like this. This is from 1 Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon was sovereign over all the kingdoms, from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, even to the border of Egypt. And they all brought tribute to him and they served Solomon all the days of his life. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan all the way to Beersheba. And every person sat under their own vine and in the shade of their own fig tree. It's the ancient Israelite way of saying a car in every garage. They all sat under their own fig tree and drank from their own vine. <gasps> Fruitful multiplied. Everyone has what they need. Good job, Solomon. Surely if I keep reading, nothing bad will happen. 
Verse 26, the very next verse. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen for 12,000 horses. Oh, no. We thought we had a good one. It goes downhill from here. It's all over the place. It's too thick for me to even read from the text. I'm just going to give you a list. Starts with chariots and horses. And soon enough, the country's bringing them tribute. It's too small. They have to build their own ships to carry all the gold to Solomon that he gets from foreign countries as well as from his own people. And he accumulates great wealth. He eventually, we'll find out, has... Hundreds of wives. He's tactical. He's scheming and he's making alliances with the foreign countries. He even marries Pharaoh's daughter. It's his favorite wife, it seems, because he builds her her own palace in Israel. The story has come full circle. They didn't, and they didn't even have to go back to Egypt. Egypt is now in Israel, a palace for Pharaoh's family. So Solomon's story is really mixed, isn't it? It starts out good. It doesn't go so well. We also teach kids about how Solomon built the temple. Wasn't that great? He spent seven years building the temple. There's chapters of the book that describe how fancy it was and what kind of materials they used and all kinds of stuff like that, right? What a glorious, wonderful gift to God. As soon as Solomon is done building the temple for God, he starts building his own palace. And he spends 13 years building his palace, whereas seven for God. We start to see where Solomon's priorities lie. And he's compromised one after one after one. And the worst part of the story is yet to come. In chapter 6 of 1 Kings, you actually hear that Solomon did so much and got so much and built so much, there was only one way to get that much done in one lifetime. Forced labor of his own people and anyone else from a foreign country who is living in his land. He takes all the refugees and all the poor people from Israel and he makes them slaves. And they're in the promised land, and here they are being forced to make bricks again. People are not supposed to be brick makers. That's not what we're put on this earth to do. Making bricks is fine. Sorry if any of you is like into masonry or something like that. Hear me out. They were supposed to have a Sabbath rest. That's God's way of saying, you are not your work. You have the image of God. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and instead... Solomon is building his own fruitfulness at the expense of the vulnerable. He gave in to the greed and the selfishness that his power could allow him to have, and he created Egypt again in the promised land. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And it doesn't get better from here. When Solomon dies, the people aren't very sad. In fact, they go to Solomon's kid, and they say, your dad worked us so hard. Please go easier on us. 
and there's actually some adult language in it that I won't use, but basically his son says, if you thought it was bad when my dad was king, just you wait. And he makes it harder. The same way the Egyptians continually made it harder and harder and harder for the Israelites. There's something about getting power that turns our attention away from using what we have to bless others to using what we have to continually bless ourselves. Israel will go on to have over 39 kings, and like we said with the kids earlier, most of them are very, very bad, and their selfishness always leads to bloodshed and oppression. It's a gnarly Game of Thrones history through the books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, and it eventually leads to the destruction of the entire country. And sometimes... Our history as a human race looks like that. It looks bloody and oppressive and awful because it looks sometimes like it's just a history of powerful people doing everything they can to hurt everyone they can to get whatever they can. People in power are supposed to be the leaders who show us how to be good. And instead, in the books of the Bible, the kings we get are people who decide, it's not good for you that I'm king. It's going to be good to be king. Instead. And so as we are here in the midst of Lent, it's a moment for us to have a moment of self-examination. Because it would be easy for us to be like, oh, those people in the Bible are so bad. It's a good thing we solved that selfishness problem today. But I see it in me. see it all around sometimes. And it's something that just can't be because our selfishness always leads to oppression and hurt. We don't even have to be king to do it, but it seems like sometimes we are really good at electing people who just promise us more and more and more of what we want. Instead of us looking for people who are going out to bless and to serve all others, to reestablish that garden-like sharing where everyone can be fruitful again. And sometimes even us in the church, we get too busy counting our own blessings as opposed to looking for ways we can give the blessing away. Sometimes our prayers become more about what we can get from God. We ask God for a lot of things. Instead of asking God, how can I be the answer to someone else's prayer? We get to this wonderful then, story of Jesus. And remember, when Jesus is born, there's already a king. It's King Herod. And you would have hoped that after 1,200 years of history, and they have these stories that they would have learned better, Jesus' story opens with Herod saying, kill all the babies so that way no one else gets to be king. And Jesus and his family have to flee. Jesus then enters the scene. He calls himself the Son of God. It's both a religious and a royal term. He's presenting himself as some sort of a king, and the Spirit takes him out into the wilderness. Because he needs to get his mission straight first about what kind of king he's going to be. Is he going to compromise along the way in order to get what he wants for himself only? Or is he finally going to be the kind of king that the people have been dying for, that will love and will serve and will show them a new way? So those little three temptations, they seem so small sometimes. Like, oh, he didn't take bread. Good for him. I didn't eat chocolate today. 
But it's bigger than that, you guys. That first one, boom. Do you want bread? Are you going to use your power to serve yourself and get what you want? You're hungry, aren't you? No. I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. And you can have it all, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. And then it says the devil takes him to the top of the temple. He stands on the stones. He stands on the bricks. The bricks built by the hands of vulnerable, fragile people who have been oppressed for hundreds of years. The devil says, is this what you want? Don't you want it? Jesus says, no. And then the devil has to run away. Because if Jesus won't be greedy, he can't do much with him. Except kill him. Stay, come back in a couple weeks, you'll see how that works out. But if Jesus isn't going to be selfish, there's not really much the devil can do. He's not going to twist. He's not going to compromise. He's not going to use his power for himself. He's going to show humanity an entire new way. What Jesus here is doing, he's not refusing just an indulgence or advice. He's looking at thousands of years of human history of oppression and power grabbing and slavery and all kinds of awful stuff. And he says, no, there's a different way forward. And it's a revolution in what it means to be human. And especially in what it means to be a king or a leader. He's finally going to be the one to get it right. So what do we do as we prepare for Easter? What advice can we get? Other than looking at just the story and trying to follow Jesus, as, as a preacher, you try and think of, okay, at the end, I have to give some practical advice, otherwise people are like, so what? I'm going to quote the words of the famous theologian of our time, the late, great Stanley. With great power comes great responsibility. It's not from the Bible, it's from Spider-Man. Have you noticed that we've become obsessed with superheroes the last, like, five or six years? Every blockbuster movie, every two months, there's a new one, right? And it makes a billion dollars. That wasn't always the way it was. But in fact, if you actually look back on the history of our pop culture, you can step back and say, what was it about those kind of stories that we were so interested in that drove us to, to pay with our money or with our time? When I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, the most popular TV shows, if you look at the ratings, are all family sitcoms. It was the revival of the 1950s, 1960s family sitcom, right? Family Ties, Cosby Show, Growing Pains, TGIF lineup was four shows in a row about families. They're a little bit wacky, but by the end of a half an hour, whatever problem their kid had was nicely solved. All of you who are boomers were having kids, and you'd been through such a turbulent time, a couple decades, your question was, what do I do now? And the traditional forms of family don't work anymore. So we all found comfort and warmth in the glow of the TV or those challenging family modern things were all solved in 25 minutes. After 9-11 happened, do you know what the two most popular shows suddenly became? Law and Order and CSI. 
something happened in our country, and we didn't expect it. We didn't see where it came from. We didn't know if it was going to happen again. It could come from anywhere. We were terrified, and suddenly these shows that were on for a while before that suddenly jumped up in the ratings. Shows were in an hour. They find a body, right? Law and order. It's always like someone unpacking their car. Oh my gosh, there's someone dead, right? They call the police. The right police show up. They look at the clues. They go back to a lab. They figure out who did it. They go catch that person. They take them to court. Gavel falls. Killer in jail. We, in the midst of not knowing what to be afraid of, found comfort and solace. In an hour, them not knowing who did something wrong, but them solving and cracking that case. And so here we are now. We're obsessed with superhero stories. And I've thought for a couple years, what is it about that? I mean, I'm a nerd. I always love that stuff anyway. But suddenly, like, everyone's a nerd. Everyone's into Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and stuff like that. And there's something about the hero story that's filling a craving that we all have. I think it goes to something like this. We live in a world and in a culture where there are people in great power who are choosing to use it not to help all the time, but sometimes to hurt and to get more for themselves. And we've built systems and structures that are supposed to protect us and take care of us, and it seems like they can't do their job. And in fact, sometimes those systems become what hurt us. And the people who are supposed to be leading us, sometimes it becomes all about them. And so we can't trust anyone anymore. So we're dying for a story where there's someone who has power, who can do something, who does the right thing because it's cool. It's suddenly cool to do the right thing. It's good just to be good. Iron Man and Batman are both billionaires in their stories who have decided at a certain point, oh my gosh, I don't need any more. I'm going to spend the rest of my life just fighting crime and taking care of other people. I'm going to spend every cent I have if that's what it takes. Superman is an alien who came down to earth, and we're not his people, but he sees how fragile and vulnerable we are, and he says, I will give my very life to protect them. Last year, a movie came out called Black Panther, and it's a story of a king who struggles with this very thing. How do I protect my people? Because it's not about me, it's about them. And it's almost like we're so surprised that anyone would act that way, that we're paying oodles and oodles of money to see it on a big screen. We're dying for people to come around who just break the habits of greed and selfishness. Because both heroes and villains have power. Heroes are the ones that take care of others. Villains are the ones that use it for themselves. We want to see those villains lose, and we want to see those heroes win. We're dying for new heroes. And we get one in Jesus. And that's why this story has endured for 2,000 years. It's someone who looks back on our entire way of being and our way of history and says, no, I'm going to do it different and better, and it's going to be right. And then when Jesus' story ends, it ends with him telling his friends and his followers, now you go and do the same. He's not just a hero to be admired, 
but he gives us the challenge of being heroes as well. And he actually believes that we could do it. We can say no to a history of selfishness and greed as well. But that's hard to do. As we continue on in Lent, I would like us all to accept that challenge of letting God look at us and seeing the places in us where we've compromised and given in to greed or selfishness and to start a new way, to look for new ways to give, to serve, to look at what we have and say, this is not just for me, it's to be a blessing to all others, and that we as a church would continue to come together and train each other to be heroes and to raise those kids in a new way of giving and love and sacrifice. Church is a superhero training headquarters. We can do this, but we need each other. And luckily, we have a wonderful example. So as we continue on with Lent, if you picked up a stone at the front, um, we've been leaving stones in front of the cross. Later, you'll have a chance to give it there. But I want you to hold it and ask yourself two questions. The same kind of stones that can be used to build something good for people, the same kind of stones that can become bricks of oppression. I want you to ask yourself two questions. Who have my heroes been? Have they been heroes that taught us a good way in the world? Or have I made heroes out of the pharaohs and kings of the world who are in it for themselves? And then ask yourself the question, how and I live more and more in the way of Christ? How can I be a hero who gets it right, who lives to bless all others and not myself? Two tough questions. Let me pray for us. God, what a great story. This, this whole giant book, it's, it's many stories that are grouped together into one big story, and sometimes it's a discouraging story because it seems like the people never get it right. There's people that try. And when you came, you did it right. And may we follow your example of loving, of giving, and taking on the tough call of not wanting so much to be blessed, but to bless others. And not wanting so much our prayers to be answered for what we want, but to seek to be the answers of other people's prayers, people in need. And God, remind us all along the way that even if we mess up like Solomon did, that you love us, you have the power to fix it, and that you are willing to pick us up and help us follow your way again another day. Amen. Um, I'd give you a moment now if you, if you want to take a moment to come and leave your stone in front of one of the crosses on either side. And then in a moment, we'll continue on with our next hymn.
Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.